2: Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to Live Wire Radio. I'm standing on Mississippi Street here in Portland, Oregon. I'm right in front of Mississippi Studios, where we will be doing the show in a matter of moments. Our theme this week is Learning Curve, and uh, I learned something, and that is that our green room might be too small because it is full of people, and I am now out on the street in the rain recording this i guess the good news is those people are super fascinating they are jen kirkman comedian and author who will be out in a few minutes also lance bangs who is a uh, director has had all kinds of amazing experiences plus we got music from hey marseille one of my very favorite bands from up in seattle washington so it all gets started just at sorry it's people training for some kind of a run here in portland despite the fact that it's a deluge out very proud of them that's my commitment, by the way, to you, to bring you this show. I'm willing to stand on the streets of Portland just to get this thing recorded. Now it's time to head inside and bring you this episode of Live Wire. It all gets started right now. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Live Wire! Recorded in front of
3: a live audience at Mississippi Studios in Portland, Oregon, it's Live Wire with author and comedian Jen Kirkman, filmmaker Lance Bangs, music from Hey Marseille, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire, he liked the fifth grade so much he took it three times, Luke Burbank.
2: Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thanks, everybody, for coming out to Mississippi Studios. We have a fun show in store for you this hour. The theme is learning curve. We're going to be talking about how we learn things, why we learn certain things. Ironically, something I had never learned was the actual definition of the phrase learning curve. (laughs) I realized that about an hour ago. Like, I've used that term throughout my whole life, I've never actually stopped to find out what it means. I looked it up uh, just before the show, and here is the uh, exact definition learning curve the rate of a person's progress in gaining experience or new skills. Now, I will spare you the internet uh, controversy that is whether or not, from a mathematical standpoint, a steep learning curve means something that is really hard to learn or something that is easy to learn. Because I went down that rabbit hole (laughs) today, and that is an hour of your life you will never get back. Point is... I had a difficult time learning something when I was a kid, and that something was the musical instrument, the trumpet. Now, I didn't grow up in a family of musicians. I didn't grow up listening to a lot of Dixieland or jazz. I didn't have any real particular interest in the trumpet until one day when my life changed in fourth grade. And I was at Daniel Bagley Elementary School, and Mr. Morrison, the trumpet teacher, really band teacher, came around to all the classrooms to try to recruit people to be in the band. And he came into our classroom, and he got his trumpet out, and he played a song. And that song was the theme to the 80s cartoon, The Transformers. (laughs) And it touched my heart. (laughs) Just (laughs) plaintive, mournful, Notes so simple and yet telling the story of the Autobots' battle to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. (laughs) And in that moment, I realized that my destiny was to become one of the world's greatest trumpet players. So I told my mom and dad, uh, I'm going to join the school band, we need to rent a trumpet. Um, this was a big deal in my family. If you've listened to this show with any regularity, you've probably heard me talk about how I grew up uh, in a family that didn't have a ton of money. And so we went to the mall, we went to Canelli Keys, and we rented me a shiny, beautiful new trumpet. And my dad said, This is a lot of money for us, but it's worth it if it's important to you. Promise me one thing you will stick with this, Luke, because I had to sign a six month lease on this thing. And I said, Dad, absolutely, this is my destiny. So I go to our first band rehearsal, sit down, we start warming up, start trying to play notes or something. At some point I raise my hand and say, Mr. Morrison, when do we learn Transformers? (laughs) He said, maybe not even at all this year, that's a pretty advanced song, Luke. And I looked at him and I did the math in my head about how long it was going to take me to get to the point of playing Transformers and I calmly packed the trumpet back in the case and left the class. because there was no reason for me to be there. That was pretty much the end of my trumpet career until almost exactly one year later when Mr. Morrison came to the fifth grade class at Daniel Bagley Elementary School to recruit people for the band. And he played a song. Can you guess what song it was? And I realized once again that my destiny was to become one of the greatest trumpet players in the world's history. The problem was there was no way my parents were going to rent me an additional trumpet at this point. So I had to use the trumpet that belonged to the school. This was the trumpet that was either for kids who didn't have the money to rent a trumpet or who had violated their parents' trust the year before (laughs) by quitting after one rehearsal. And this thing was so dingy and like it had like Civil War era spit in it it was gross but I knew that this is what I had to do I knew it was my destiny so I kept going to rehearsals I would carry the trumpet to school and kids would make fun of me for the trumpet kids who were poorer than me which didn't seem cool you want to know who really likes to lay it on when you're a poor kid is a kid who's slightly poorer than you because they don't get that opportunity a lot so I was really a target But I stuck with it. I did it about four months in. I could really feel that I was getting this. This was clicking. We had a a school band concert coming up. And Mr. Morrison took me aside and he said, Luke, I'm really proud of you. You put in so much work. And uh, you've really impressed me. I also need to tell you that you're one of the least talented trumpet players I have ever experienced at the elementary school level. And if you want to be in this concert, I have some maracas for you. Maybe a triangle, but you are not playing trumpet. And I'll be honest, that did effectively end my my trumpet career. Here's the thing, though. You might think that with a story like that, my dreams had completely died of learning the trumpet and specifically of learning the song to Transformers. But you would be wrong, my friends. And that is why a young man named Michael Thompson is about to come out here. Michael Thompson is a sophomore at Grant High here in Portland. He's played the trumpet since he was eight years old. He is here to try to teach me how to play the Transformers theme song... (laughs) Please welcome Michael Thompson to LiveWire. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. <laughs> um, okay. I don't know who's more nervous about this, Michael. Uh, you, at 15 <laughs> years old, to be on a radio show, or me, to be holding a trumpet after all these years. Um, How did you get so good at trumpet that you've played in all kinds of different uh, orchestras and other musical outfits and that, in fact, you've even taught people how to play the trumpet? How'd you get so good? I've practiced a lot. Yeah. That had never occurred to me. What is the other key to being a good trumpet player? Uh, Luck. Luck? It's all about hitting the right buttons at the right time. Don't they have uh, that stuff written down in the sheet music? Sometimes.
3: I forget my music sometimes, so it's like, it's like locked to
0: remember it and then locked to remember what to play. So you have had
2: a moment where you have totally gone blank on what you're supposed to be playing and then you just went for it? Absolutely. Okay, so you were good enough to actually learn some of the Transformers theme song for us, Right.
3: Yes, absolutely.
2: Um, how long did it take you to learn it? I assume months, maybe even a lifetime? <laughs> I got a call yesterday at like six. <laughs> uh, and it took you like five minutes to learn it? Five, yeah, five minutes. Okay. Would you, uh, could you play it for us here so we can sure. hear how this is actually supposed to be played? How much of that can you teach me in the next 90 seconds
4: we can probably start with the first note
2: okay all right so uh what is the first note what do i press down it's an e E. so i'm going to press down the first two yes okay all right so was that close almost almost
1: This guy's got
2: it. Okay, so e, so it goes, it goes uh, e, and then what's the next one? F sharp. The middle one. Okay, so so play that for me. Uh-huh. Why does it sound like that when I do that? Am I blowing too hard? Not hard yeah, enough? Yeah. Mm, a, too hard. Too hard. Okay.
3: Okay. And
2: then, uh, <laughs> Somebody just said, little, there's boom. hope. <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> Can you play it one more time? I'm going to commit it to memory, and then I'm going to try it with the house band. Okay. okay. See awesome. how much I've learned. <laughs> All right. I've got it. I've got it. Johnny and Walker, uh, could you guys help me with this a little bit? I'm going to lean heavily on you, okay?
3: Transformers,
2: more than meets
3: the eye. Yeah. Battlefronts wage their battle to destroy the evil forces of the second Transformers, more than meets the eye. Autobots wage their battle to destroy the evil
2: forces of the Decepticons. Transform Michael Thompson, thank you so much. You taught me everything I know about trumpet. I just learned something. You can kind of play it like a kazoo. This show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market featuring high-quality meats that are free of antibiotics, added growth hormones, and animal byproducts in feed because antibiotics belong in your medicine cabinet, not your pork chops. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to LiveWire from PRI. We'll be right back. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who asks... Did you ever wonder why your most brilliant ideas seem to surface while you're running or surfing or dancing? It's because your body was designed to move. And at Ergo Depot, they encourage that by creating amazing products like chairs, stools, and stand-up desks that encourage your body to do what it was meant to do. Visit them online at ErgoDepot.com to check out their full line, including the Jarvis Stand-Up Desk. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio from PRI. Okay, the theme of this hour is learning curve, which is something our next guest often explores with her comedy. Jen Kirkman's first book was about her decision to not have kids because, as the title mentioned, she could barely take care of herself. Now she's out with the follow-up. I know what I'm doing, and other lies I tell myself. Please welcome the work in progress that is Jen Kirkman to Livewire.
4: I sound like a real loser on uh, those book titles. Hello, Portland.
2: I worried about that in the intro. Was that
4: too no, far when the... I said
2: the work in progress that no, is Jen Kirkman? I, I
4: am. It just, it just really hit me as the truth.
2: I want to ask you about the beginning of this book because it starts with uh, your divorce. Uh And I'm wondering if you could just kind of describe for uh, people where you were at in your life at that time, why that relationship didn't work. Like, what Uh was going on for you?
4: It was, you know, the divorce was the easiest part. I think it's different for everybody, though. Like, uh, I believe I got married for the wrong reasons. And I kind of do have regrets about the way I wrote about it. I wish I'd gone into that more, but... I was with my ex husband before we were married for about five years, and I thought I was being an adult. And there's this whole pressure I think, of your woman or a man or whatever relationship you're in. If you live with someone, sometimes something will come up, and your ego makes you get. Me- like, I remember my grandmother died, and he and I were talking about. You know, we both were really broke at the time, and, and he helped me pay for the flight back to Massachusetts, and my sister paid the other half. And it was this thing of, like, it wasn't even discussed that he was coming, because he was just a live-in boyfriend. And I remember thinking, like, God, if we were married, it would be automatic that you would come. So I was like, I can't even believe we're not married. Like, when is this going to get serious? Not because out of love, but just, like, that's where I should be right now. And I wanted someone to feel that way about me. I mean, was really fudged up, if you think about yeah. it. And so... um so we both got married thinking, like, that's what we should do. But there's enough love. It's not like there was hatred. There was so much, like, familial love and brotherly, sisterly love that, then again, when you start talking to people, like, I don't really know if it's, like, love, love. And people go, oh, no, that happens. It's Yeah, you're mature now. Like, they act like there shouldn't be any chemistry anymore.
2: Well, um, so okay. I
4: went through with it. But so the divorce was easy because we both admitted this is not romantic love.
2: Um, we're talking to Jen Kirkman. Uh, her new book is I Know What I'm Doing and Other Lies. I tell myself, uh, I loved the book, by the way. I Thank thought you. it was really funny and just interesting. I thought it was going to be a comic memoir, but it was more or less a spy thriller at one point involving a stolen cell phone and yes. blackmail. I was on the edge of my seat.
4: It's so good. Can you, good. without
2: giving too much away, can yeah. you talk about... What happened when someone tried to extort you over your cell phone?
4: Yeah, well, it, towards the end of my relationship with my husband, I'd basically said, you know, I don't think this is working out. He said the same thing. I had to go to, I live in LA, I had to go to New York to do some some comedy stuff, and a bunch of comics were hanging out and one of their comics brought a friend, and I hadn't in the book I'm talking about, I hadn't felt attracted to anybody, not even like a fantasy in a long time, and I met this guy and I thought he was really fun and cute, but I had to leave the next day and we became pen pals, and nothing dirty. It was like but the intent was I I didn't know what the intent was, but I kept in touch with him every few days, and he had been divorced, and he was kind of talking me through it. And then I had to go to New York again, and we were going to meet up for a drink just to talk about, you know, divorce and stuff, and I wasn't divorced yet. And um, I went to Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut with my parents, and I was texting this guy like, I'll be in New York tomorrow, we're meeting up, we're not sleeping together, but we're going to have a drink, and I left my phone at the slot machine, and when I went back down, it was gone, and then I called my phone number at three in the morning, and a guy answered it, and he lived in Queens, and he was like, hey, Jen, I have your phone, and he's like, I bet you wouldn't want TMZ to see these texts with that other guy. And I'm not famous, but I was on this show, Chelsea, lately, that some people liked, but I never got recognized from it. Like, people used to stop me in airports when I was with other people from the show and ask me to take their picture, like, not knowing I was part of the gang. And so he was like, he thought I was super famous. And he's like, I go, well, I'll be in New York tomorrow. I'll give you 50 bucks to get my phone back. He's like, how about 5,000? But I have a joint che- you know, a joint checking with my husband. I can't be like... I needed five thousand to get my phone back. You know, any normal person would be like just let the phone go. And so I, my friend knew an undercover cop, so I had detectives with me, and we waited on the corner where Radio City is for this guy to come. He said he was anyway. You'll have to read the book, but you will. It was a, the oh. most terrifying moment of my life. Then later, when I still was the one that had to introduce the subject of divorce, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish that had been in TMZ. It would have been easier than me having to communicate with someone directly.
2: Uh, in the book, you talk about. Uh, how you spent your 40th birthday on a blind date in Stockholm, yeah. like one does.
4: As people do. Well, yeah. how did that happen? <laughs> well, I had no plans for my 40th. But I had friends who go, oh, what are you going to do this year for your 40th? And I would get so mad. I'd be like, what are you going to do for it? Like, I was like, what? it's time to throw me a surprise party. Um, <laughs> but nobody did. And I got an offer to do this comedy festival in Lund, Sweden, which if you haven't been, it is utopia. Um, How are
2: the Swedes as a comedy audience?
4: The best. They are. So, everyone is completely bilingual and they even understand um, sarcasm and, and better than American audiences understand their own language. <laughs> and. They were laughing at all my divorce and gay marriage jokes because they were like, we don't even worry about that kind of nonsense here. So they were kind of laughing at me, but with love. And they were (laughs) wonderful, and they were just... It's one of those things where you do a big festival on a Thursday night, and everyone from the town comes and picks what acts they like, and then your show is sold out by the next day. And here, it's like Twitter. I'm your biggest fan. I can't come out, though. I want to watch TV. Like, there are actually people that leave their house, and they're wonderful, and so... um, My friend Greg, we were hanging out that night, and I was like, I'm going to Stockholm the next day for my birthday, and he thought it was incredibly sad that I was going to be alone, and I was like, no, it's an adventure, and I used to be afraid to go places alone, and this is cool, and he's like, just meet my friend. He's also divorced. He's also 40. He lives there. He's like, he's my least worst friend, and I was like, all right, well, and and I didn't want to, so I met up with this guy, and we went to this beautiful uh, bar and restaurant called The Gondolin, which is like... Uh, way up high. It was so miserable. I had one drink and then we left. <laughs> and uh, and I paid for it. And uh, they're a very feminist country, so they just gave me the check and I was like, all right, calm down with it. Let's not get crazy. Um,
2: you really seem to want to embrace the upside of Swedish culture, but not the downside. No, of
4: course. And, and by the way, he was like, it was not even like fun. I'm like, oh, I should have been set up with a Swedish dude, not some American who's like, talking about, like, his job that he probably doesn't have, you know, like, oh, I don't work anymore because I just want to be free. I'm like, oh. it just, but he wasn't very nice. He wasn't very nice. He was making fun of me and, like, what? I- well, because I got lost on the way there. I'm like, I've been in Stockholm for three hours. Sorry, I got lost. And he was, like, uh, I said, I didn't, I don't have my glasses on. I don't really like to wear them. And he was, like, oh, four eyes. And I was, like, this is how I'm spending my 40th birthday with a A dude calling me four eyes, and uh, so he didn't
2: even wear the glasses, which is an attempt to not be called four eyes.
4: Yeah, exactly. Like he's
2: missing how that joke works.
4: I always. (laughs) God, I wish I'd thought of that. (laughs) We left at like ten, and I went back to my room and read InStyle magazine. And then I got such a bad cramp in my leg, I thought I was having a blood clot. And uh, I called my doctor, which, if you know, the time difference is perfect for a hypochondriac. And she uh, said, "Go to Seven Eleven, which they had there, and, and get some aspirin." And that's how I spent my birthday. And actually, that was better than thinking I had a blood clot. Was better than hanging out with this guy. Yeah. And I've never been on a di- like I don't go on blind dates. I don't care. Like, if unless I'm in love with someone I've purposely chosen, I don't care to be set up so it was I just was like I don't know why I did it I guess why not I was wandering around Stockholm alone you know but no more Um, but the the bad news is the restaurant was so beautiful I did want to stay I wanted to almost like leave and come back in a disguise and just sit (laughs) and look out over the city
2: like the Ruth Reichel of dating
4: (laughs) I don't know who that is am Um, I stupid no
2: no nobody gets that no do you guys know she, she was famously a, well she's a, still a restaurant critic and a cook and an author oh thank
4: god I thought it was someone important like and she she's. was a Nazi and you know like I'm a like I'm racist if I don't know her or something okay thank god <laughs> restaurant critic I don't mind being called out that I don't know
2: that just went from being the best to the worst moment of Ruth Reichel's life <laughs> in about 15 seconds.
4: Not interested. She's not a Nazi. No, <laughs> name, I just. Um, name but you know when like, someone important in history and you don't know their name and then yes. you're outed as like, not an intersectional feminist. You know how it is.
2: How far do you go with, um, with pretending you know something when you don't know it? Uh, or uh, pretending you've seen a movie that you haven't uh, seen? I get caught in that a lot. Well,
4: okay, I can't believe I just came clean in that moment because after I went I Don't Know That, I got a chill of... Like, I was like, okay, what do I do next if it's someone important? i I'm like, oh, no, 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 I didn't get the name. Okay, yeah, I was going to do some gonna lie. Um, I've, there's a lot of movies I haven't seen that I just feel like I missed the boat on. Like, it's not going to give me the same joy. Like, you know, uh, imagine if someone hadn't seen, well, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, for example. I, I missed the boat. I, I'm not going to, yeah. I don't care.
2: But you've never found yourself lying about.
4: Oh, I lie all the for time. For no now.
2: reason, right? Lying yeah. about a thing that is so unimportant. Yeah. Like, oh, I love that cracker, that kind of cracker. Well, you
4: know what's funny? Yeah, there's two different things because I haven't seen Fast Times and I just feel like I missed the boat on it and who cares at this point. But I, I lie about it just so people don't go, no, my God. And so. But then there is the other lie that you find yourself saying where you're like, why is this coming out of my mouth? Like, when people mention bands, I'm like, uh huh, no idea. I, I just do it because I'm like, I know you're using that as a reference to get to the next thing. So let's just hurry it up. Like, yeah. you know, I, got, I don't want to be like, I don't know them. And then they're like, oh, they did that thing. And then they're saying even less things you comprehend. It's just like, this is so boring. Again, I'd rather be getting an aspirin and reading an Us Weekly.
2: You may. You may have just sort of answered my final question, um, Jen, but. Which uh, is, how do you
4: like to spend your time? Yes. <laughs> buying aspirin and, and no.
2: Um, this hour, uh, where our theme is learning curve, we're talking oh. about learning things. I'm wondering, uh, what do you think you've learned in your life at this point? You write a lot about trying to figure life out, mm-hmm. it's, it's often part of your comedy. Also, I want to mention your podcast is amazing. Oh, I thank really you. hope people check it out. It's one of my favorite things to listen to.
4: But I enjoy doing it now. I don't used to in, <laughs> now.
2: In in all of in all of that time and all that exploration, what do you think you've learned?
4: I think what I've learned is to stop trying to figure it out because every year I'm gonna be a new person anyway. I've learned be in therapy. If you are, don't date someone who isn't. Uh it's never ever 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 gonna work out. And um and I think other than that, uh stay healthy don't make fun of things, uh, don't make fun of vegans, don't make fun of, uh, it's hacky, and I am one, don't make fun of, um, don't make fun of, uh, I don't know, just don't, don't be Bernie bro. That's what I've learned, that specifically this year. Uh-oh. Um, and then, um, What's a Bernie bro? Uh, somebody who's overly aggressively obsessed like Bernie. with Bernie Sanders? Yeah, but they're like, uh, he's a better feminist. And I'm like, pipe down, 23-year-old. Um, so, uh, a 23-year-old boy, women can pipe up all they want. Uh, I've also learned not to care. It doesn't matter. We're all gonna be dust. And I don't really care what anyone thinks of me, but not but that's what I've learned. Not in the obnoxious way where you go around like acting like Donald Trump. I don't care what anyone thinks. Be kind to people. You're only here to help other people feel good before they die.
2: Well, this is wonderful. I feel like we've learned <laughs> a lot about you. Jen Thank Kirkman, you. ladies and gentlemen, right here online. That was Jen Kirkman right here on LiveWire. Jen will be in Austin on April 22nd, Chicago on April 23rd, Seattle on the 29th of April. You can find out more at jenkirkman.com. This is LiveWire, and this week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines with daily flights from Kansas City to Seattle and Portland. Ribs in the morning, rain in the evening. Alaska Airlines bringing the Midwest to the Northwest. Our musical guests this hour have been described as an indie folk and chamber pop band by Wikipedia and friggin' awesome by me because I know these guys and I've been dragging them on various shows I've done for years. They got a new self-titled LP out which you really need to check out. Please welcome Hey Marseille to Livewire.
3: My eyes, you're the one I can't deny And we move in the landslide Watch it all turn to dust Block out the daylight With the stars out Show me what you need Do you want it To be on it. I've got my eyes on you I've got my eyes on you You were waiting on the pavement The light from a photograph Silent on the other side And my words and arrangement. Can we use broken parts to hold it all upright? With the stars out, show me what you need. Do you want it? To be honest, I've got my eyes on you. I've got my.
2: on where thanks you guys Thank you. hey marseille one of my very favorite bands in the world they're going to be on tour march 10th they'll be in salt lake city march 22nd in phoenix they'll be uh, in seattle on april 2nd you can find out more at heymarseille.com where you can also get their new lp hey if you like what you are hearing you might want to take a moment and subscribe to our podcast it is free of course and allows you 24-hour access to me telling embarrassing stories about myself. It could be just the pick-me-up you need on a tough Wednesday. All the details are available over at LiveWireRadio.org. We're talking about the learning curve this hour on LiveWire, and how and why we learn certain things. Well, Lance Bangs has a novel approach. He points his camera at stuff, and then he studies it. Whether the thing is Johnny Knoxville and the crew of MTV's Jackass profoundly injuring their private parts or residents of Zambia coping with HIV and AIDS, Lance Bangs has documented all of it to fascinating effect. One of his latest projects is called Flophouse for Vice Land, which we're going to hear about in a minute. Please welcome Lance Bangs to Livewire. Hello. Lance Bangs, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to talk about your new series for Viceland called Flophouse. I watched an episode. It was so good, dude. I'm glad you watched it's, it. Yeah. It's a, I guess uh, ostensibly it's a stand-up comedy show, but it seems to be more about these places where comedians are living together, right?
0: Yeah, essentially like in, in the fall of 2014, uh, Vice realized that they could get access to build an actual TV network and brought in Spike Jones, a filmmaker I've worked with a bunch over the years, sure. to be the creative director of the whole thing. And then Brought me in to start figuring out, like, how do we make shows or what do we want to do? If we have, like, the keys to our own, you know, 24-hour TV network, like, what we put on it, what's important to us. And we want to do the stuff that was, uh, like, not scripted, but not reality TV. Like, none of us watch reality TV or want to contribute to that culture. So the idea is, like, <laughs> what, do we, what do we see that's, like, you know, kind of uh, documentary-based or verite-based or based in the real lives of people? What do we care about people with points of view? Who do we want to kind of connect with empathetically? And see the world through their conditions, or lives of like what it's like to be alive in 2016. And in that lens, we started looking at like, you know, travel, music, uh, politics, news. How do you do all that? And for comedy, I didn't want to do how that normally gets handled on other TV shows. But I thought somebody I went, standing in front of a brick wall,
2: yeah, yeah. at a comedy club.
0: And so I thought if I go and like kind of meet young comedians that are actually like living their lives, and how do they make rent? And how do they like, you know, how do you break into the scene in Los Angeles if you're from Houston? And realize that there are these kind of group houses that people would share rent and basically have like a mattress or on the floor or two couches and like a young woman might come from Houston and, and stay there for a week in Los Angeles and hit every open mic that she could and hope she got seen by somebody and then go back to her work in Houston. Yeah, there, makes,
2: there are these places all over yeah. the country and, and pardon the comparison, but it's like the Underground Railroad of broke yeah, people who think they're yeah. funny. They just, like, they get an address, they show up, they're like, can I crash here and go find as many open mics as possible?
0: Yeah, and there is some weird shift where among young people that might have picked up a bass and joined a band in the 90s, like, what they're doing with their energy now is that they are going into comedy because you can make things and put them on YouTube or you can perform in venues that aren't comedy clubs. The
2: the conditions, though, of these houses (laughs) are... I mean, one of the people there, uh, Alice Wetterland, who's a hilarious comic who doesn't live at the house mercifully, but she's going to perform. Yeah, She just made a joke at some point. If you got a cold and you were in this house, you just go right to the hospital immediately because yeah. you're probably dying <laughs> from the foul conditions. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, it just was like so gross. I mean, is that part, do you think part of paying your dues in comedy that you have to live in a real scumhole at some point?
0: Yeah, unfortunately that is part of the dynamic where <laughs> the people that are drawn to this are living this kind of marginal existence and they don't seem to mind. So there's this house in... In San Francisco, called the Sylvan House, that like maybe 15 people are, you know, all crammed into, and people are living, sleeping on staircases. Not like on the landing, but like contorting their bodies, <laughs> which I didn't know you could do to sleep like <laughs> on stairs.
2: Oh my God. We're talking to Lance Bangs, a filmmaker. His uh, new series for Viceland is called, I called it Viceland like it was a, a, a suburb of Iceland. Yeah. It's Viceland, I guess, yeah. right? An outgrowth of the Vice Media Organization. The show is called Flophouse. In fact, uh, one of our other guests on this show, Jen Kirkman, you shot her comedy special. You yeah. do a lot of stuff with comedians. And I wonder what is so appealing to you about shooting comedy stuff.
0: Like I said, there has been a shift that like, the kind of people that are making culture for themselves in their 20s that would have learned how to play bass and join a band 20 years ago, those personalities seem like they're now getting swept up in, in making stuff or making comedy or making short videos. And one of the guys we met in, in Colorado said that he believes that stand-up comedy is a fourth wave of American punk rock, that that's sort of the energy of all these people that's going on right now that's where they're kind of heading and making stuff and exchanging favors. And you come crash with me in Omaha and I'll get you on a show in St. Louis. And so that is kind of this weird circuit that is going on now. But for me personally, like I, I came out of uh you know, music culture and personal filmmaking and, and documentaries and political work. And then in the nineties uh, would have to kind of go out to Los Angeles for, for work for that. And at night the bands that were playing in Los Angeles were like, aspiring professional bands. But at night, the people like David Cross and Bob Wood and Kirk, Jeanine Garofalo, they would all get up and do weirder material at um, a place called Uncabaret or a place called Largo. And, you know, Elliot Smith would come down from Portland and perform there at Largo. And that was sort of the, the thing to go do at night. And so I kind of infiltrated socially, just like hanging out with that crowd of people. And then when they wanted to make specials, there was a formula at the time of like what you do for an HBO special where you get in front of a broadly lit theater and there's a spotlight on you and you pace back and forth and And that's the show. And then they were like, well, what if we don't do that? What if we just, like, you know, do a documentary version of it where we travel around the country and shoot in different venues and show what it's like and the weird people you meet and have to talk to after the show? And so started doing things like that for David Cross, and then other comedians saw that, and
2: that became, like, a new opening to make weird content. Uh, You've also had... I printed out your Wikipedia page, Lance Bangs, which is insane. It is so many things that you have made in music video and film and television, just music video stuff... You've shot videos for R.E.M., Bell & Sebastian, Pavement, Kanye West, or you've been part of a Kanye West video. Some of these bands, I I love almost every band on the list of bands you've worked with, and yet I know some of them to be temperamental. Yeah. How do you handle that as the director? (laughs) I've been pretty lucky. Like Most of the time, the people, when they made a choice to work with me, it's usually
0: not the largest budget, slickest video for the main lead single on a record where the stakes are high. It's usually like Kanye being like, I want to make a weird thing for this song. Will you come over to my apartment and bring a camera and we'll kind of figure things out? So the the pressure is way lower, and it's more of a collaboration creatively. And, uh, like, I'm not the best person to go make a glossy, slick-looking video that's going to sell a million copies of your album. I'm someone that can kind of, like, help you stretch
2: out or make a more personal or or human piece. When you have an idea about something that would look good or work for the overall concept, and, let's say, the lead singer of the band doesn't want to do it or is... Or, or has agreed to do it, this is the worst, has agreed to do it and then suddenly doesn't want to do it. Like, how do you manage that situation? It's tough. I kind of presume
0: from other stuff I've shot, like we, you mentioned the jackass stuff, I kind of think that people are going to be more game or more willing to throw themselves into whatever to kind of get something done and, and have it come out great. And sometimes you realize that people aren't as down for that and that they don't want to risk getting flipped upside down or get their hair messed up or or whatever. Uh, so that's tricky because those things kind of deflate and don't come out well, so you have to either kind of like rally them and kind of coach them through, like, all right, like, let's get one shot of it, then we can take a break
2: or go home, but like we need to see you flip upside down in this thing right now. It must be a dream then when you're working with the guys from Jackass who oh, all yeah. they want to do is flip upside yes. down, possibly <laughs> with an alligator biting their privates. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Was that the most fun, making that stuff with those guys? I mean, that just watching it. Delighted me to no end. That must have been a blast to get to make.
0: It was amazing. And again, I came into that from a weird route. Like I wasn't some extreme sports uh tough guy. Like that's not who I am or who I was. The the trick was that when we wanted to have something that had more personality or heart or humanity to it, they thought that they should have me tag along and kind of get interview footage or get to know the guys or have them open up in a less guarded way than the the camera guys that were like, come on, you know. Uh, so that's kind of what my role ended up in that stuff being, and, and I think they thought it was funny that this like semi pretentious poetic underground filmmaker was like on the verge of vomiting
2: because of how gross things were. <laughs> uh, what was the uh, what was the grossest thing you witnessed that you can describe on public radio?
0: Yeah, they're, they're, I'm trying to think of what that what that line is. Uh, There were just so many
2: bad ideas. Like, maybe I'll talk about one idea that I really wanted to happen that we never got to do. Actually, Lance, can can we do this? Let's quickly uh, take a break. I want to hear the story when we come back. (laughs) We're talking to Lance Banks, filmmaker, and we're right here on LiveWire Radio. Back uh, with more in just a moment. Hey there, it's Luke. You might already know this, but in case you didn't, LiveWire is actually a non-profit. That's right. We rely on the generosity of you our listeners, to keep this little radio show going. Consider becoming a member of our League of Extraordinary Listeners and support this show, which connects you to the artists, music, and comedy that we know you love. You can find out more by visiting livewireradio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire Radio, coming to you from Portland, Oregon, PRI. We were talking to filmmaker Lance Banks, who has made a ton of things. Uh, His latest project is called Flophouse on Viceland. Uh, You also worked on a variety of uh, Jackass productions on MTV. And before the break, you were going to talk about something really memorable and kind of gross, but not so gross that we can't talk about on public radio. I was going to pivot that and talk about an idea of something I always wanted to shoot that we never got to that's not a gross
0: idea. Maybe that's better. Yeah, I think so. Okay, lay it Uh, on me. We always, like, the timing of when we would shoot and be done to kind of have a film done or a TV series done never lined up at the right time to go do it. But it frustrated knowing that we never got to go shoot this thing where we essentially would have gotten, like, a, a fire truck filled with water that was ready to, like, shoot from hoses and, and put out anything. And we would have, like, driven it out to the middle of the, uh, the playa at Burning Man. And just as soon as they lit it up and everyone was, like, peeking on drugs and having their great experience, we would just, like, put it out immediately. LAUGHTER ruin everybody's experience and be like, no need to thank us. Like, you're, like we're not heroes. We're just, you know, it's, it's okay. It's all part of our job and just ruin
2: everybody's experience. You want to see some angry hippies put out their yeah. Burning Man. Yeah. Oh, that would have been it would Great. have been so good. Let's Kickstarter that, okay. can we? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that it's too late for that idea. Um, uh, you've uh, you've worked on so many different things. You've had really great success as a as a director and, and cinematographer and person who is behind the camera. I'm wondering, I think people might think, uh, oh, photography, filmmaking, how hard is it? You point the camera at something, you take the picture, you hit record. What is it that you're looking for? Like, what are you doing that's different than all the other people that want to do this but aren't, you know, asked to do all these amazing gigs that you are?
0: I don't know. I never had uh, proper professional training. I never went to, like, legitimate film school or Learn three-point lighting or any of that sort of traditional structure and just uh, made things from an early age and had a sense of trying to want to explore the world. And things that mattered to me, people like meeting Jodie Bliley and becoming like this person's like a living saint, not in a religious term, but like someone who's bright and her mind is on fire and what she's got going on inside of her is going to be important significantly culturally. To want to kind of like capture that or represent that or share that with other people is what made me kind of want to spend time or, or find ways to shoot that or reflect that. And so I would just obsessively put myself in the places that seemed the most interesting or, you know, want to get invited along to go jump in the van with a band and tag along on a tour if they meant that much to me. And then built up this archive of that kind of footage, and then other people would realize, like, wow, this he's been at the places that later got culturally recognized or did matter to people. And disseminating that footage, that information was really rewarding to me and, and, you know, getting people outside of Athens to know about New Hotel or getting people out of Portland area to know about Elliot Smith. Like all that stuff was just its own. I couldn't help but to do it. Like it just mattered to me for some reason.
2: Do you think your lack of formal training has actually helped you in any way?
0: I think so. I think that there's a more intimacy that can happen. If you just know instinctively like this framing is going to work and, and look good on someone, and you can keep eye contact with them when you talk rather than being back over there behind a monitor with like five bright lights in your face and the proper microphone at your mouth, you're less connected to me if I'm over there than if we're talking like this. And so being able to kind of comfortably hold something and frame it and get an intimate shot this way is more what I'm after.
2: Uh, We are talking this hour about about learning things. I'm wondering, uh, after all your time uh, doing this kind of stuff and really just being a human being, what do you think you've learned at this point, Lance Bangs?
0: I learned to say no to stuff and question... When people just want you to make something the traditional way... And you can just sort of like decide, no, I'm, I'm not interested in doing that. Or what you're trying to get out of the piece in the end and find a different way to approach that or get to that, that's the thing that's been the trick that's worked for making things that's more interesting.
2: So you've learned that sometimes you've got to say no. Oh, all the time you have to say no. And yet you said yes to being on this radio show.
0: I turned it down for years. It's true. Yeah. Really? I, it's just because we have the TV network that launched this week that I said yes. It was just <laughs> to promote the TV network? Yeah. How do you feel it's gone? I feel more comfortable talking now than I have in the past. Like, I've always avoided attention or or talking like this. But uh, I I care a lot about the shows that we made. There's a great show with Ellen Page called Gaycation. It's just, like, all this stuff that we've been spending a year and a half or two years secretly assembling and plotting and building and refining and editing and re-editing. And now that we're putting it out in the world... And, you know, to be honest, I don't know that people still watch linear TV... And so we want it to get seen, and then we're putting it out, like, for free on the website or on YouTube or whatever. Well, that's but-
2: what I'm, I'm wondering about a little bit, not to get too, uh, I don't know, uh, biz- media business about it. Yeah. But, I mean, Vice, the, the video products from Vice have been things that have lived online for a long time, and people geek out on them and, and love them. And then you guys are starting a TV network. Does yeah. it seem like it's moving in the, <laughs> the wrong direction?
0: Yeah, by any conventional thinking, it is. Like, it's a weird, regressive move. Like, why aren't we just opening a chain of AM radio stations? But, hey, uh, hey, hey, you watch yourself.
2: <laughs> you watch
0: yourself, fangs. <laughs> but uh, but it, like, it's such a great platform to play around with and, and, and take over and, and make something and see what happens and see what it spawns. And like, you know, There's weird transmissions I saw as a kid that stuck with me or got in my head. There's a show, Night Flight, that when I would babysit for people. Absolutely, I remember you know. that. And so there may not have been more than 50,000 people watching that late at night on Friday or Saturday, but I'm sure that those of us that did, that it made some impression.
2: Well, uh, now that you've been on the show once, will you start another TV network so you can come back on the show? (laughs) Yeah. Great, Lance Bangs, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. (laughs) Hey, if uh, you're going to be here in Portland on Wednesday, March 9th, come hang out with us right here at Mississippi Studios. We've got a great lineup of guests. Uh, one will be Rebecca Traster. She has a new book out called All the Single Ladies, which had a huge write-up in the New York Times this week, which you should go check out. We've also got British historian Ruth Goodman here, an expert on life during the Tudor age, and comedian Amy Miller. It's going to be a really fun show. You can find out more by going to livewireradio.org. All right, we're talking about learning things this hour, and of course, one of the main places that we do that when we're kids is elementary school, and so we thought we would ask friend of the show, Bree Pruitt, to come out here and tell us a little bit about stuff that she learned when she was in elementary school. Bree Pruitt, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you. All right, Bree Pruitt. Yes, sir. We, uh, we we wanted to talk about elementary school experience, and, and so we had this kind of crazy idea, which is we called your mother. We got the names of your actual elementary school teachers. I am going to say a name of an actual teacher of yours. You're going to tell me what you learned from that teacher and also just what you remember about them. We don't have a ton of time because yeah. we are, at this point, yeah, like... Very over on the show, okay. so we got to kind of like whip okay, through okay, this. Okay, okay, okay.
1: I I got this. I mean, okay. I I marijuana has been legal for seven months, but I'll do what I can. Okay, um, let's try to. All
2: right, you ready? To... Yeah. Uh huh. All right, let's start with Mrs. Amos, who was your kindergarten teacher.
1: Okay, she uh, had dresses. She wore dresses that looked like they were made for dolls, but uh, grown. And then she had like a mushroom-shaped hairdo that was blonde.
2: Not her head, but the hairdo. Yeah, her
1: hair was mushroom shaped. Um, so that is what I learned.
2: What? what? <laughs> you learned that her hair was mushroom I shaped? I learned
1: to spend some money on a haircut <laughs> if people are looking at you. All <laughs> Don't right. Use a flow bee, I guess, is my suggestion. Why do
2: you say her dresses look like they were made for dolls? They were
1: like, like, like sack. Laura Ashley dresses like you know very high cut, which I guess you don't want to wear a low cut dress if you're teaching kindergarten. Yeah. But you know that was the move.
2: What about your okay. first grade teacher, Mrs. Holag?
1: Yeah, okay. She looked like a female Ronald Reagan, uh, <laughs> but she never had any candy around. She was super joyless, and she one she I we we're taking a test in first grade at one time, and she. I was like, I have a stomachache. And she was like, no, you don't. Sit down. And I, I w- was... Did you have a stomachache? No! Ache? And I <laughs> will always respect her for knowing the difference.
2: So that's what you learned from her.
1: That kids are liars, yes. is what I learned. Okay. How
2: about uh, your fourth grade teacher, Ms. Gobazal? Yes,
1: yeah, she was incredible. She was like, wore linen, and she, you know... Um, she she taught us about planets and I remember she put on these like African cassette tapes, like African tribal chants, and we would paint the planets, but it wasn't like the planets, it was like how we felt about the planets. So I I learned, and she would sing us the multiplication tables, and that's how I learned multiplication.
2: How do you paint how you feel about a planet?
1: You just like listen to African music and just kind of process.
2: I feel like that was a lost year for you, Brie.
1: No! Emotional intelligence is intelligence, Luke.
2: Okay. All right, fair point. Uh, okay, finally, what about your fifth grade teacher, Miss Suter or Sutter?
1: Sutter. Um, yes, she. Uh, uh, remember when Gene uh, Hackman and Bird Cage was in drag? Oh yeah. She looked like that. She was big, and she had shoulder pads. She always had scarves, but not like like winter scarves, like the scarves that you go to the department store and there's a whole section of scarves and you're like, who are these scarves for? And they were for Mrs. Sutter. And she loved, she favored the popular kids in class. And she gave us extra marbles because we were cool.
2: Wait, so you were one of the popular kids in class who benefited from this unfair system, from this bescarfed nightmare
1: Yeah, and I learned it's pretty important to be popular.
2: (laughs) Great. Brie Pruitt, ladies and gentlemen. That's what she learned in elementary school. So here we are at uh, what is just about the end of the show, and I think it's time for us to figure out what we learned. This is where I take this microphone on a very long cable, and I actually walk out to the edge of the stage and I talk to real members of the audience who have no idea I'm about to do this. What is your name?
3: Tony Zakowski.
2: Tony, what have you learned in the last hour?
0: I've learned that I can make films whatever way I want, and that I don't need a proper
2: training for it. I do feel like... I feel like that was, that was an inspiring story, but also really bad PR for a college education or any kind of formal training. When Lance Bang said, oh, yeah, I just kind of winged it. Yeah, that's kind of how I play music and, you know, write things, just whatever. So, okay, you got some encouragement in that. What is your name?
3: Oh, hi, I'm Coop.
2: Coop, have you learned anything in the last hour?
0: Uh, I, learned, uh, I learned that it's important to be popular. Um,
2: well, that's good. That was the message we were really trying to transmit.
0: <laughs> so I'm just working on that in my mind. And uh,
2: Do you have any ideas on how you could be more popular?
0: Oh, God, just scarves. <laughs>
2: I think that's all, legally, we can actually learn in one hour. Let's uh, tell you who helped make this particular episode of Livewire happen. Oh, we definitely have to thank our guests. Jen Kirkman, Lance Bangs, Hey Marseille, and 15-year-old trumpet player Michael Thompson. This show was made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company. Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Jim Brunberg is our producer and editor. Laura Hatton is also our producer. Our announcer and writer is Mr. Jason Rouse. Our guest writer of this show is Bree Pruitt. Our house band... Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by Daniel Blake. Our show mixer is Jason Powers. Thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Elia Unverzat is our talent wrangler. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Additional funding provided by the Meyer Memorial Trust, Work for Art, and Oregon Arts Commission. For more information about our show, head to Livewire Radio. .org or download us on iTunes or Stitcher. That's our show. We'll see you next week. Thank you.
3: <laughs>
2: PRI Public Radio International